in different ways encourage us to be dim and dumb and numb and hypnotized by lesser things, by screens and stimulation and cheap, easy pleasure and distractions. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's never been more important to establish the practice as a community of gathering around the Word of God, allowing it to um, reveal the nature of God to us, reveal the path before us, challenge us, to pierce the veil of um, whatever lesser priorities we've sort of, maybe without intention, but we've sort of been drawn into and allowed to overcome our hearts and our minds. That's one of the reasons why our church centers the Word of God, because it's not uh, just good information, and it's not even, uh, it's more than even just a truth. It's an, it's an actual power that God uses to raise spiritually dead people to new life in Christ, to rouse kind of sleepy, half-awake Christians fully awake, and to confront people who may maybe think they're Christians, but have never actually trusted and lived for Jesus. So let's pray as we move into this really powerful chapter. God, I pray that in light of what we've heard, we know that you use uh, your word to reveal the truth about who you are, who we are, how we're called to live. So would your kingdom come in our community today? Would your will be done? Would you reveal your glory to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So we are moving through the book of 1 Samuel, allowing it to teach us about God and ourselves and what our calling as God's people is in the world. These are events that happened about a thousand years before Jesus, but because they deal with the first few kings in Israel's history, they actually invite us into all kinds of sophisticated and powerful lessons on leadership and power and kingship or authority. And what faithfulness to God with that authority and power or under that authority and power looks like, especially during unstable and difficult times, and especially when those occupying places of power are actually not aligned with God's will. So last week we saw Saul snap at, with jealousy at David's kind of growing popularity and uh, the momentum of his social status and attempted to kill him. And the text repeatedly said that Saul was afraid of David. And he's not afraid physically of David, uh, but he is threatened by David, by this popularity. Paul, uh, Saul says, I am the king, I'm on the throne, I'm supposed to be important, I'm the one who people are supposed to be glorying in. And as people are recognizing David's faith and courage, and in a sense praising and encouraging him, there's this jealousy that begins to take root pretty substantially in Saul's heart. He tries to kill David and then puts him in all kinds of compromising situations that are a threat to him, he tries to marry him off to one of his daughters who he believes is going to act as a snare to David and kind of trip him up spiritually. At every turn, Saul, as the king of Israel, as someone who's supposed to, uh, manifest and, and uh, live out uh, God's qualities is doing the exact opposite. He's stacking the deck against David, and he's placing David in situations where there are just increasing threats that are designed to take him out. And one of the things that is sad about this is that it often happens to those who gain power. This same seduction can often overtake those who are given authority. 
And it begins to corrupt them because some people, when they gain authority, they don't understand that their authority or their position is a stewardship for the sake of other people. What they see it as is an earned entitlement through which to benefit and enrich themselves on different levels. And what happens then is other people succeeding, other people flourishing becomes a threat, and those in power begin to strategize on how they keep that power, how they expand that power, and the role gets turned in on themselves. And their world becomes smaller and smaller because they see threats all around them, even if they're completely uh, illusory. They keep doubling down on control, or in Saul's case, violence, or intimidation, or threats to hold on to that position and authority. And it's a pattern that continues today across lots of domains. It happens in the political sphere, and in in churches, and in families, and even within friendship circles. But one of the things the text says in the previous chapter, again and again, that even though Saul was threatened by David, and he's trying to hold on to power, it says the Lord was with David. And David doesn't fall because of these threats. He actually flourishes. And that's an amazing prayer to to pray for yourself, is to say, God, would you be with me in the way that you were with David? If I just focus on you, if I seek first the kingdom of God, I'll entrust the results to you, but would you be with me? Because what you see in the previous chapter is that when God is with us, really nothing can stand in our way. Now, let's move into chapter 19. And the first verse just is shocking. It would have been shocking to the first readers. Saul told his son Jonathan and all his attendants to kill David. So Saul's private jealousy that is spilled over in some ways, but it's been shielded from uh, a large number of people, it's metastasized into a murderous intention. And now his sort of private jealousy against David goes much more public. And he's actually not hiding and he's saying, he's enlisting people to participate with him in David's destruction. And when I thought about just that one verse, I thought this is a good place to remind myself and to remind all of us a truth that I probably heard in my mid-20s and that I come back to pretty consistently. And that is, if we do not transform our pain, we will transmit it. It's just inevitable. If you don't allow God to transform the pain and hurt and wound in your life, you will just transmit it. And so Rick mentioned last week resources like learning about the Enneagram, which is a sophisticated tool to understand what motivates us and how to identify sort of blind spots that we have in ways that we may be, to us, operating very naturally in the world, but doing all kinds of damage is important. Resources like developing an emotionally healthy spirituality or discipleship, there are really good ground-level resources that can get us started on the journey of growing in self-awareness And doing some of that hard work that Rick alluded to last week where we actually invite God's Spirit to confront us and to say, you know, see if there's any unrighteous, crooked, self-deceived way in me, God, and I want you through your Spirit to bring it to light. Because I don't want this little thing to metastasize into something that I can no longer control. And it kind of 
overcomes and controls me. And that's what we're seeing in Saul. And this can happen. I mean, this is part of the story. This can happen for believers. You can be, uh, in different ways, numbing from hard things and hard uh, places in your life. You can be running from God in your own life and sort of occupying a Christian posture. Um, And so this is a warning for all of us to be coming back again and again through different rhythms and prayers and confession to get real with God and allow God to expose places in our life that we would rather hide or ignore or dismiss or minimize or just, just stay focused. That's a past. Let's just move on to the future. And it's also a warning for non-believers who are numbing and running from God. That if you do that long enough, there can be this buildup in our interiority that when we don't give the Holy Spirit a place and power and prominence to be doing the heart surgery that the Spirit does through His Word, through community, through all kinds of different avenues. But if we're resisting that, if we're holding it at bay, uh, we are kind of playing with fire. And we might say, it, I've got it under control. It's an ember. Don't worry. Oh, yeah, it, start, it starts as an ember. But what we're seeing in Saul is that it, it over, it, it just, Saul doesn't know how, he's far from God. He doesn't have community. His world is small. He's trying to maybe deal with it on his own, and now it's leaking out everywhere. We have to learn to participate with God and to cooperate with God even when that means going to uncomfortable places of pain in our past, and our history, in the current moment. Verse 2, But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David, and Jonathan, Saul's son, warns David, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out, stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you, and will tell you what I find out. And so Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to his father, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He hasn't wronged you. And actually, what he, done, what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel. And you saw it, and you were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? I mean, that's hard to stand up to your dad in our cultural context. There's all kinds of family dynamics in place. To have to confront your own father is difficult. To have to confront your own father who's the king, that ups the ante. To have to confront your own father who's the king over Israel and is clearly not in his right mind is a massive risk that Jonathan takes. Tremendous courage, right up there with the courage of Esther. Verse 6, Saul listened to Jonathan And Saul took this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. He swears an oath to God. Bullet dodged. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought David to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Which you can keep reading, or you can just kind of sit here for a second and be like, that's kind of awkward, right? (laughs) You were serving my dad, My dad enlisted a bunch of people to kill you. Don't worry, I had a conversation. You can now go back to serving my dad. It's okay. Right? How awkward is that for David to show up in that room for the first time? Hey, Saul. Hey, okay. Just, uh, I'm just going to pretend like nothing happened. (laughs) Like, I just think, wow, what an anxiety-ridden situation. David has to trust Jonathan 
and Saul and God to go back into what was a literal life-threatening situation. But he does. Continues to serve. And then some period of time goes by. We don't know how long. And it says, but once more war broke out. And David went out to fight the Philistines and he struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. That's a, that's, a, that's a picture of an impotent king. It's a time of war. Everyone else is fighting a battle. Saul is like vicariously holding the spear, but he's not actually engaging. He doesn't have the courage to. He's retreating on his throne. And while David was playing the lyre to bring relief from Saul's distress, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. Um, the language here is Saul throws the spear in the previous chapter. The inference here is that he tries to drive it into David. He tries to get up close and personal. His hatred, his jealousy has gotten to a place where he's like, I don't even want to deal the death blow from a distance. I want to get up close. I want to look at this guy's eyes and be like, I hate you. You're not going to be a threat to me any longer. So it's very vicious. David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night David made good his escape. So maybe it was days or weeks or months, but Saul had sworn an oath to God and then just turns on a dime. I'm not going to, no harm's going to befall David and then he tries to run him through. So it just shows again the contempt with which Saul uses and carries God's name. And I thought about this, um, and I thought, you know, the abuse of power and authority has got to be one of the sharpest spears that you'll ever be pierced by in your life. You know, th there's things that happen to us and to, I mean, there's always that first betrayal or that first broken heart or that first act of bullying or violence which, which shocks us. But what really tends to do massive damage is when someone in authority over our lives, that that's the context of the betrayal. And that's what we're seeing here. And this week, the, the Southern Baptist Convention, largest, I think, denomination in the States, just uh, released a scathing report on sexual abuse that the too long didn't read version is essentially they had an executive that was hiding sexual abuse that was happening across different churches. They weren't letting churches know that they had a list of 700 pastors who had been accused of, um, and had not just accused, I'm sorry, um, but they had uh, pretty strong evidence or indication that there were issues related to um, in some cases, sexual abuse of minors, but in others, just sexual abuse of congregants. And they did not disclose that to any churches in order to uh, avoid potential lawsuits or legal action. And, you know, when stories like that break, I mean, you get to a certain age and you know there's corruption, you know there's a cowardice. But when it comes through people, part of whose authority is given in order to protect and to empower. And it's used in such an anti-Christ, cowardly way. Man, th there are very few things that wound deeper than that. Authority and power, as God designed it, 
is a gift to be wielded and used to advance good, to strengthen trust, to help groups of people, individuals and communities, to flourish. It's power that's designed to lift up and shepherd people in communities into their God-given destiny. And so when authority and power is wielded to advance personal agendas or abuse or control or manipulation, it's, it's such a deep betrayal at not just a human level, but it, it's, it's such a, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what stronger language I can use other than it's, it's the literal antichrist movement in the way that authority and power is supposed to be understood. Our deepest wounds come from abuses of power and authority from places that should be nurturing and empowering, from family or spiritual leaders who we trust or institutions of faith. Places that we should be able to trust, not that they're perfect, but there is a thoroughness and a willingness to own up to faults and to live into truth and to live into greater support and care and maturity when those places become places of betrayal and mistreatment and even abuse, those are wounds which are uh, just devastating. I mean, they're really, really devastating. And I want you to understand that for David, Saul represents an intersection of all of those places. He's kind of like a surrogate father because he's brought into his home to serve alongside him. He's also an employer. It's his place of employment. He's the king. He's supposed to be um, a kind of role model and, and special kind of image bearer of what authority and power is supposed to look like and feel like under that. He's supposed to represent an institution which moves Israel forward. He's, Saul is supposed to be at the literal tip of the spear fighting against the enemies of God and he's using his own spear to mistreat and bully and abuse. So David is let down and experiences this wounding on all of these levels. Verse 11, Saul sent men to to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you're going to be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and he escaped. And then Michael took an idol and laid it on his bed. Uh, Where'd she get the idol? We're not sure, but maybe that's why Saul wanted to marry Michael off to David. He saw David's strong faith and said, well, my daughter kind of dabbles in idolatry. So if they get married... You know, I've, you know, I know some of the older stories and, you know, falling into idolatry is pretty easy. But she, she does the old, like, idol and the goat hair in the bed switcheroony trick. And uh, Saul sent, men to Dave, sent his men to capture David. And Michael's like, oh, he's sick. And Saul sent the men back to see David. And then he says to his men, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. Now, this is another level. This is a... This is a, a, a terminal jealousy where Saul before asked a small group like kill David for me but now he's saying you know what just bring him on his bed to me I don't even care and what that means is I don't care who knows people are going to see the bed being carried through the street it's going to be brought into the throne room I'll kill him but I don't care there's actually there's no fear of God there's no fear of any recourse there's no sense in an honor shame culture of that is a 
what a dishonorable thing to do, not just to kill an innocent person, but to do it while they're sick on their bed and can't even get out of bed. Like just absolute, Saul thinks he's untouchable here. He doesn't care who knows. His vendetta against David runs so deep, he's willing to sacrifice it all in the name of violent um, vengeance that is stoked by nothing David's done. So when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and the head had some goat's hair, and Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? So Saul sees David as an enemy. And Michael told him, he said to me, let, let me get away. Why should I kill you? So she's kind of like, oh, I had no choice. He was going to kill me, and I just got out of the way. Like I, He kind of forced me. That's a scene break. That's kind of like scene one of this chapter. The next scene, kind of weird, but interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a moment. When David had fled to make his escape, he went to Samuel and Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. And the word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men. And they started prophesying. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. And Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. So there's like a spiritual force field where these assassins get close enough, and then God's Spirit literally um, comes down on them, not in glory, but in, in a restraining power, and all they can utter are truths and praises to God. So they're just literally being brought, brought to heal by the power of God. Finally, Saul himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he said, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all day long and all that night. And this is why the people say, is Saul also among the prophets? That's a throwback to when Saul was first anointed by the power of God. He prophesies in a way that reveals God's empowering presence, that God is preparing him for leadership. And people are like, oh, is Saul among the prophets? Like God is powerfully with him. And now it gets turned into a taunt. Because Saul has come under the judgment of God, and Saul, like his soldiers before him, came to deal out death, but God just is like, no. You will bow. You will acknowledge me as Lord. David is protected. You will prophesy, but you're going to do so in a way that strips you of all your dignity, all your royal trappings. You will be brought low. You came here to bring David low. You will be brought low. It's a very, very powerful picture of what Walter, Walter Brueggemann calls a dramatic delegitimization of Saul. This is God making it very public that not only has he withdrawn his spirit from Saul and then blessed David with an empowering spirit, but he is bringing Saul to nothing, literally back to dust. This once great man Remember Saul, the tall one? He's still tall, but he's no longer great. And he's pitiful. He's stripped of his royal dignity. He's not in control. He's ashamed. And he's now rendered powerless in a posture of submissiveness before God. 
And again, that's not arbitrarily cruel on God's part. This comes after a lifetime of Saul rejecting and ignoring God's will for his life, even though he's meant to rule under God as the vice-regent and vice-king. There's a few lessons from the text we've already teased out, but let me offer uh, two more. Number one, we, we need to notice and be prepared for the fact that a life that shines will always threaten those who love darkness. A light that shines will always threaten those who love darkness. Notice Saul's rage is prompted by nothing other than David's faithfulness and goodness. As David walks faithfully with God, as he images God and the gifts and identity that God has made him, he's doing all the right things. But Saul is ticked. He hates it. He's jealous of it. I mean, he could have walked the same path, but he's chosen not to. And David's a reminder to him of what he should have been. And it just causes Saul's heart to seethe against him. David is doing everything right, and Saul still wants to kill him. There's a heart check there for all of us that says, how do I react when I see other people who are shining, who are really living into God's purposes for their life, who are literally glorious? Their lives are uh, heavy with meaning. Do we give thanks for them? Do we praise God for them? Do we seek to learn from them? Or, like Saul, do we nurture a resentment? I should have that. I should be like that. Who do they think they are? And their shining, their light, exposes the fact that we aren't actually walking with God. And the way that gets transmitted is resentment towards them, but they've done nothing wrong. It's us avoiding the fact that we're triggered because they're actually faithfully growing and maturing in their faith. And we're not. And they're just an easy target. And notice David's faith was a trigger for both Goliath and Saul. Right? It said that Goliath despised David when he sees him on the field. There's something about who David is. He knows who he is. He knows who God is. He knows what it means to move forward into God's mission, and he's doing it, and Goliath hates it. And you'd kind of think, well, that makes sense for the enemies of God to hate that. But what about, like, a fellow Israelite? Saul hates it, too. He despises David. This David kid showing me up, having all these people post about him on social media. David's so amazing. David. I'm the king. I'm the one they should be celebrating. I'm the one they should be retweeting. And what that means is we should expect the same kind of treatment. If we are living faithfully and humbly and fully into the path and the calling that God has for us, there are going to be, not everybody, but there are going to be souls in the world that reach for their spears. And there are going to be Goliaths outside the church that will reach for their spears. But there will be Saul's inside the church that will reach for their spears. Now, sometimes Christians face critique, and sometimes people um, are derisive and uh, despise Christians for certain reasons, right? When you have the Southern Baptists say, yeah, we've been kind of 
hiding a lot of stuff and doing it for self-serving purposes. We haven't been concerned about churches and we've been protecting pastors and our reputation and our brand more than children and congregants. That's a valid reason to despise an organization like that. But sometimes Christians are despised simply because they image God in a really beautiful way. And they reflect into the lives of others what others are resisting in their own life. John 3 says this, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people who love darkness instead of light because, they, because their deeds were evil, everyone who does evil hates the light and they won't come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And Jesus told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, so it won't always, but if it does, if there are factions and people in this world who just want to run you through, just keep in mind they hated me first. See, if you belong to the world, Jesus says, it would love you as its own. If you were just participating in the system, they'd be like, great, you're one of us. But because you're not one of them, Right? Jesus says you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. Not to be literally out and extracted from society, but to inhabit a different lifestyle, a different way, a different worldview, a different path than the default position. And that's why the world hates you. So let's remember that. There are times where we, living into the fullness of God, will face pushback from those around us. And it's not necessarily an indication that we've done anything wrong. It, it might actually be an indication that we're doing all the right things. And lastly, uh, and this is a sobering one for everybody, but doubly so if you're in leadership in any way, the presence of God's empowering spirit is no guarantee of future blessing. Because God blessed you and empowered you back then does not allow you to presume on his blessing now or moving forward, just as a matter of course. Saul was chosen by God. Saul was anointed by God. Saul was empowered by God himself. And now we see Saul reduced to nakedness and shame. And there's a warning here for each of us. You can't live today on the spiritual blessing of your childhood or your young adulthood or this zone in your past where all the pieces were coming together just because you were walking with God's blessing on our lives then, it doesn't mean that you get to shift into cruise control for the next few decades. God's hand of favor and grace might have been heavy upon you then, but you should not presume upon it today. Especially if we're living essentially into our own agenda and living for ourselves. We aren't given the details of how Saul's heart came to such a corruption and hardness against God, but it obviously didn't start out that way. Saul had his issues. We all have our issues. But after being chosen and blessed and empowered, he decided bit by bit, again and again, in the private decisions of his own life, and then very publicly, to sideline God's leadership in his life, to resist God's leadership and guidance, to not submit himself to God, and to take charge and say, I'm the king, I'm the captain, I'm number one. And eventually what God does is he removes his blessing from Saul's life. And that can happen to you, and it can happen to me. And some of you right now are like, wait a second, Jeff. I've often heard in the church, like, once saved, always saved. 
Well, first, not every Christian believes that. Some Christians do believe that the text says you can uh, walk away from God to a degree where your salvation is severed. I don't, but even if we grant that once you are saved, you are always saved, that does not mean that if you are saved, but walking in a way that is anti-God and ignoring God, that God's going to continue to bless your life. Like, how could he? It, it doesn't actually make any sense. Right? My children will always be a part of my family, but if they operate with smug indifference, prideful rebellion, and they live in a sense with their fingers stuck up at me all day long, that may not jeopardize their standing as my child, but it has a massive impact on the blessings that I withdraw from their life. Either as a natural consequence of that disconnected relationship or just because they can't be trusted with certain things. Because I'm not going to empower them in the, I don't want to encourage this direction at all. And in fact, I might put in some guardrails or even some punishments or redirections. You may be saved no matter how you live because we don't earn our salvation, so we can't unearn it, but you will not be blessed and empowered regardless of how you live. There's a difference between our salvation and our sanctification. Our salvation, God is wholly responsible for, but we have to cooperate with God in order to grow in sanctification. That's a big Bible word that means maturity and growth in our faith, a close walk with God. Not being perfect, but increasingly being conformed into a Christ-like image in our life. Maturity, like real transformation. We have to participate in that. And if we say, thanks God for the salvation, and God says, here's the path, here's I want you to grow, and you're like, oh no, no, no thanks, that's a lot of work, I just kind of want heaven, and then I want earth on my terms, and like we'll reconnect over here. And I'm, I'm not gonna be a rude God, I'll go to church, I'll do some stuff, I'll say some prayers once in a while, but I'm gonna be kind of like, not really in this thing. And then we wonder why we don't seem to be experiencing any kind of spiritual momentum. It's because God can't bless disobedience. He just can't bless disobedience. I'm not, I'm not talking about mistakes. We all make mistakes and we repent and turn and confess and try and make amends. I'm talking about active resisting God. When, we, when the Spirit of God prompts us, you need to give more, you need to serve here, you need to take time with me away, you need to do X, you need to do Y. And we're like, mm, no. If that continues like it does, it can harden our hearts and then God's blessing can get removed from our lives. And somewhere along the way, maybe some of us have said, we absolutely want salvation, but I'm not really interested in sanctification. And so we start betraying our baptismal vows, and we start, instead of resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we start living into those things and those priorities without much thought, oh, God's going to forgive me. Like, I was baptized. I, I, you know, I go to youth group. I'm going to uh, I'm in a Bible study. I'm a pastor. I'm on the SLT. And we stop pursuing what it means to honor God with our whole life. That's a, that's a dangerous place. 
If we decide to go down that path, we need to understand that there are consequences for it. God cannot bless disobedience. God will not bless someone carrying his name in a hypocritical way. God loves you, but God will not be mocked. Paul says in Galatians, a person reaps what they sow. If you sow to the flesh and uh, to the priorities of the world and the devil, you will reap from those things. If you sow to the things of God, you will reap blessing and life. And so maybe for some of us, this story is a good gut check to say, which trajectory am I on, broadly speaking, David or Saul? Saul has all the outward appearance of being in authority and power and blessed, but on the inside, his life is spiraling out of control. David on the outside looks like a nobody, but God is doing something on the inside that's ascending him, and God is blessing David, not because David's like some super awesome, you know, uh, larger-than-life like, D David is a different kind of person than everybody else. David is just obedient and humble. And he has a heart that wants God to teach and lead him, even into dangerous, difficult places. And God blessing some people and withholding his blessing from others isn't God playing favorites. All God's children are loved by him, but he will withhold blessing from those who are not walking with him faithfully just like a good self-respecting parent will withhold certain blessings from their child, if that child chooses again and again to ignore, resist, reject their leadership, their counsel, their guidance. So Saul starts strong, but he, his ending is really tragic because he's running on the fumes of those early, early experiences of empowerment with God. And here is one story where kind of like the fumes run out. And his life has become immeasurably small and pitiful because he's abandoned God and said, I'm going to do things my way. So there's a, I, I think a very natural gut check there of like, is, is my spiritual life running on the fumes of a few decades ago or is there still an intention? Again, not, a, not, not, not talking about perfection, not talking about hyping yourself up, but a turning and seeking God with my life today. Or was that something I kind of had time for back in the day and now it's just the cares and the worries of this life have overtaken it. Like, I still love God. I'm not rejecting God. I believe in God. I'm, do, I'm doing stuff, but is that our posture? We need to repent of it if it is. So I said the abuse of power is the sharpest spear, and that's true, but it's actually most true when we see it through the crucified Jesus. In John 19, we're actually told that Jesus has a spear that pierces his side. And in Isaiah 53, it tells us the significance of that event. It says, He, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. And in this chapter alone, there's quite a dramatic difference between King Saul and King Jesus. Saul is driven by murderous jealousy. Jesus is driven by jealous love. Saul is motivated to kill and destroy. Jesus is motivated to love and rescue. Saul wields the spear to inflict death. Jesus absorbs the spear to impart life. Saul stays on his earthly throne and demands that David be brought to him so that he can kill him. And Jesus leaves his heavenly throne and seeks to save you and I, the lost. Saul is stripped naked of his royal garments because of pride and corruption. Jesus was stripped naked in order to take upon himself our sinful pride and corruption. Saul's nakedness and shame is a pitiful picture of his powerlessness before God and others, but Jesus' nakedness and indignity on the cross 
is a picture of his powerful obedience. Saul was the king and the shepherd who sought to take the life of his sheep, and Jesus was the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. If you are a Christian, you are called to serve the risen Christ wholeheartedly. Please heed the warning of this passage. Allow the Spirit of God to convict you and snap you out of a permissive, casual Christianity, cruise control Christianity, and commit your life, not a moment, your life in your every day to Him. Because you have a lot to gain if you do, and you have a lot to lose if you do not. Let's pray. God, may we hear this message in a way that allows it to sink into the soil of our hearts and prompts a response by your Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's worship during this final song together.